Welcome to the Cana Connection Podcast. I'm Rob Cranston, and in today's podcast, we're really excited to have our guest, Connor McLemore, and we'll be talking to him about his recent award for a technical article that was given to him at the 88th Military Operational Research Symposium. Welcome, Connor. Rob, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. And Connor is a Cana Principal Operations Research Analyst. Uh, he's a new Caner in the last month. Uh, Connor comes to us from a recent retirement from the Navy uh, as a principal operations research analyst and section head in his last billet uh, and previous to that position was a program officer and military assistant professor in the ops research department uh, at the Naval Postgraduate School. And really cool, his primary MOS, military operational specialty, was a naval flight officer specific to the aircraft E-2C Hawkeye. We're going to go over today a discussion on a really exciting award that Connor and his esteemed colleagues colleagues received uh, at the 2020 88th Military Operational Research Society Symposium, MORS, which was held the week of 15 through 19 June. Virtually, due to the ongoing epidemic COVID-19, it was done very successfully. Uh, so a shout out to the MORS team. Well done. Uh, and within that annual symposium, the leadership presents a variety of annual awards. And this year, Connor and once again, the two esteemed colleagues, Sean Doheny, Chief Analytics Officer at PDSAT, and Dr. Sam Savage, Executive Director of ProbabilityManagement.org, were the recipients of the John K. Walker Jr. Award. So this is really exciting. My first question, Connor, and I'm pa and passing this over to you, is uh, give us an overview of the person behind the award. John K. Walker Jr. Yeah, okay. Um, so John K. Walker Jr. was a uh, phalanx editor for for many, many years, and he was uh, involved with uh, with Moore's. And he, you know, uh, so, so Moore's is the Military Operations Research Society, and it really is made up essentially of, of volunteers and people uh, giving their time to uh, the organization. And that's one of the things that appealed to me greatly about Kana initially is how active. Uh, so, so Norm Ryder is very active in Moore's, former Moore's president. Uh, you always have a, a huge presence at Moore's, and and so so you know, it's a um, professional society, and it and it's really you know made up of the um, things that its members give. Yeah, those members certainly have been in the forefront of ops research and the design for creating these environments within. The different parts of not only the military community, but the broader federal community of what is data and data recognition, data, data munging, data scrubbing, data just in general, how it's managed. Thanks. Yeah, that. absolutely. And it's interesting. I mean, so Homeland Security had a big presence at uh, Moore's this year. So, you know, I think it's it's uh, certainly the Military Operations Research Society, but it, it's definitely uh, broader than that, to your point. Well, good. So the award itself being an award that is for a technical writing and in those achievements in that technical writing um, evaluated with other technical uh, submissions throughout the year. Uh, give us perspective on how you came up with your theme and with that, the operational risk roll-up title. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Dr. Sam Savage is the uh, executive director of probabilitymanagement.org. I've been associated with probabilitymanagement.org for um, many years now. Uh, I, I ran into Sam when I was uh, teaching at NPS in the ops research department. And then I've also known Sean, I, I don't know, for a long time as well. I, I went out to Quantico when I taught a, a short course on ops research. And I think that's where 
uh, we really hooked up and Sean sort of got pulled into probability management. But so pro let me explain what probabilitymanagement.org is, and then I'll get to, to your specific question of how we came up with the, the title for the article and everything. So probabilitymanagement.org is an organization is a nonprofit organization that's dedicated to improving the communication of uncertainty. And, and what does that mean? So, um, you know, I think I think dealing with uncertainty is sort of baked into uh, operations research. It's how we think about a lot of stuff. But the problem with it is it's not it, it's not it's not widely available. It's not uh, it's not something that most people can just pick up and run with. So you think about, you know, probability distributions. Right. How do we normally communicate those? Well, we communicate them through equations. Typically, we have these parametric probability distributions with these complex equations that scare off most people. Right. So Sam's Sam's big innovation here and why we're calling it operational readiness rollup is he realized that you can instead of having these complicated equations you can just have these arrays of data that represent these probability distributions and they can be parametric they can be non-parametric whatever but the key is they have certain characteristics like they're they're auditable and you can add provenance to them and stuff like that so the idea and the whole idea of probabilitymanagement.org is using Monte Carlo simulation and these these arrays of data to communicate uncertainty and to allow anybody to do it, not just people who have had advanced statistical classes. So the reason we called it operational readiness rollup is because the whole idea is we want to, and Sam came up with the idea, he's great at the, he's great at the PR stuff, certainly. But the idea is you want to be able to roll up readiness. And, and when you think of it in those terms, and you look at the existing readiness system that we have now, you really, you really can't roll up readiness, right? So the way we measure readiness is uh, essentially, it, it's a, it's a measure of ready or not. Right. I mean, that's certainly that's how we did it in naval aviation, where a unit was either ready for something or it was not ready for something. And the problem with that is, is it, it cuts to the title of the article, which is you can't roll that up. There's no way to roll up. Uh, you know, if you have five squadrons and some are ready and some are not, you have no idea what the aggregate readiness of those squadrons is. So what we wanted to do was we wanted to take this you know, SIPMAS standard that, that Sam came up with, we wanted to apply it to readiness because first off, readiness is in, incredibly hot right now and in the sense that, uh, so I, and I think uh, two things drove that. One was uh, SecDef Mattis in September of 2018 uh, mandating that fighter aircraft would achieve an 80% mission capable rate. And then the other thing that I think drove it was Admiral uh, uh, Grady, who's uh, Fleet Forces, his speech at uh, AFCEA West in 2019 saying, hey, we need a better way to, to measure readiness because the existing system just isn't cutting it. So we wanted to respond to that. We wrote, uh, we actually wrote three articles. The one that won the Walker Award was the uh, operational readiness uh, roll-up, which was our first article. But we, we did two others. One was an article in uh, ORMS Today, and then we did another um, uh, a detailed example about carrier air wing readiness, which was a follow-on uh, Felix uh, article. Well, that's great. And, and specific to readiness and, and that roll-up, inevitably, commanders have got to produce a number and set of numbers that are around metrics that give and provide the fleet commanders that, that sense of what's real, what's up, what's not. Um, so 
what I'm hearing you saying within this probably that roll up, it can be very difficult and impossible to roll up those numbers in, in complete accuracy. Is that correct? Yeah. So, I mean, a, a couple of things about that. So, um, so I think a lot of this, that question speaks to the problems with the existing readiness system in the military. But as to complete accuracy, I, I would say that you don't need a perfect model, right? Mm -hmm. You need you need a better model than the current system. So what we're proposing is something that can be adopted incrementally and would provide value anywhere it was adopted and could be uh, incrementally improved upon uh, over time. So this is the classic. This is the classic beat the bear thing, right? So you don't need to have the perfect model. You just need to be faster than the other guy's model when uh, when you're when you're doing this stuff. And that's really uh, that's what we're proposing. Interesting. Well, let's dig into that, and that being the the approach and and the use case. And you mentioned the air wing readiness. So talk us through the scenario, Connor, in in calculating carrier air wing readiness. This, this additive approach. Yeah, absolutely. So let me let me actually back it up to a, a very simple example, and then I'll jump into sort of the carrier wing example, and that's sort of how we we intended this to work. So so the example we always kick it kick it off with uh, to make to make the overall concept sort of uh, sort of understandable and to talk about why it's important is the uh, uh, Operation Eagle Claw example, which was the uh, failed. Uh, uh, rescue attempt of the hostages taken from the American embassy in Tehran in uh, 1980. So students stormed the embassy. They took a bunch of American hostages hostage, and in 1980 uh, we attempted to to rescue those Americans. So uh, Rob, I'm actually gonna uh, I'm actually gonna give you a little uh, quiz here, and I I, I think you probably oh, heard man. me talk about this before. So I, I just want you to put on your your operator hat, right? I just want you to think of this in terms of being an operator in in the sense that. These probability distributions are not in, intuitive a lot of the time. So I don't I don't blame people for making these mistakes. And without these tools, uh, it's actually very easy to make these sorts of mistakes. So let's go back to the hostage rescue attempt. So what happened was the U.S. ended up sending uh, eight helicopters full of special forces to go and rescue the hostages. Uh, they went to this Desert One landing site, and they needed uh, six helicopters to continue the mission. And you know, one of the things that I didn't know at the time—I didn't know even recently—was at the time I was just born. Even recently, was that the mission was scrubbed prior to the disaster, where I think a lot of people know a, uh, a helicopter collided with a, a refueling aircraft, and and several Americans were killed. But the mission had already been been scrubbed at that point. And the reason the mission was scrubbed is because uh, go criteria required six helicopters out of the Desert One landing site. And, you know, there were maintenance failures on three of the helicopters. So they only had five helicopters to move forward. So they were already just trying to retrograde and and uh, and get out of there. Um, so here's the question. So. Uh, you know, you're the commander of this mission, Rob. Your helicopters have uh, operational availability of 75%, meaning that 70% of the time they're not going to break on, on this mission. So uh, how many helicopters do you need to send to get six helicopters meeting GO criteria out of the Desert One rescue site? Well, as a commander, I'm going to need six, but I know that that means four to answer your question. Yeah. So, so, and 
so you want six, so you you have to send extra. So I think you're you're doing it exactly how most people would do it, right? So you're taking seventy five percent of whatever number. In this case, seventy five percent of eight helicopters is six helicopters, which gives you the go criteria out of the desert desert one site. Am I interpreting that correctly? Right. Okay. So I... that's exactly what they did. They sent eight helicopters, and they only had five helicopters out of the desert one site. And you might say. You, you know, you might say, well, that was just that was just bad luck. More helicopters failed than, you, you know, you expected. But what if the president had been briefed that uh, this mission had a 32 percent chance of mission failure based simply on the number of helicopters that have been sent and their operational availability? I mean, I, you know, I think we would have gotten a very different number of helicopters sent. And that's what the the Holloway report, which was sort of the um, the report that evaluated why this mission was such a disaster said at the end, it said, send more helicopters, right? That that's a, that's an easy solution. Well, that's, this is what we're proposing. So you can, so I think operations research folks will say, well, yeah, let's just use a binomial distribution. Uh, let's use one of these name distributions, uh, 75% probability of success. And you get the exact same number, right? Uh, 68% chance of mission success, 32% chance of mission failure. But the problem with using the binomial distribution even is that now you can't start taking into account all the things that actually matter. So these were helicopters that were flying through, you know, sandstorms, they were flying together in in high temperatures, and there's correlations between these failures that the binomial distribution is not going to be able to account for easily, right? Maybe you could use really fancy math. So all we're saying is that let's just simulate it, right? And you don't need to know how to simulate how to how to do anything more than apply the tools which are free and open source at the probabilitymanagement.org website to do these sorts of simulations and get and um, make much better decisions and communicate uncertainty to decision makers a lot better. So that that's the very simple example, right? So then, uh, you know, going to your other question, which is the carrier air wing, why, why did we choose? Uh, carrier air wing readiness. Well, I, I think we chose it because I, I know carrier air wing readiness. So my background, as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, is I'm a ET, I was an E2C Hawkeye uh, Naval Flight Officer for years. So I was you know intimately familiar with how we report readiness. And I think the 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 readiness system as it's implemented, certainly in naval aviation has has some good things about it, but for the most part, you you still can't roll it up, right? So we report readiness in naval aviation as squadrons are either ready or they're not ready. And what we want to move the discussion to is we just want to say, look, it's possible to say instead of ready or not, you can say, how ready are you for what mission, right? And so even before we did the carrier wing readiness article in Phalanx, the, the ORMS Today article, I'll just mention, I won't get into detail on that, but we base the ORMS Today article on the idea of that old poem that's talking about, you know, for want of a nail, the shoe was lost, for want of a shoe, the horse was lost, and all this stuff. And, and, and the reason we did that is it, it's, it just illustrates, you know, for want of a nail, in the end, the kingdom was lost, right? And that's a roll up. That's what that's what you want. You want to be able to say how many uh, how many riders that you have available. You want to be able to potentially combine units and and you want to do it with uncertainty. And that's what we don't do a lot of the time in, in military readiness. We have these deterministic measures that do not do not communicate the uncertainty around military unreadiness. And Connor, I so with that and I know you get into 
which is which would be really good to hear for the audience and the models you guys presented in the article. And I at Cana, I know we in a lot of scenarios where we create a modeling and simulation component to the problem or the need. Did you get enough of that, or do you think that at in your position and when you when you were writing that this article and that application of modeling and simulation to be able to come up with outcomes that create alternatives that allow for perhaps a better way to to manage, let's say for example the industrial base, you know materials. Uh, so I, is is that something to that uh, you guys considered? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. So, you know, we chose military readiness because it was hot. Right. But I think it's I think it's widely applicable. I mean, so fleet forces is uh, an Admiral Grady's whole thing at FCA West was I mean, he's in charge of the Navy's connection to the industrial base and providing mm-hmm. forces, including in terms of readiness to the fleet commanders. Right. So so I think the 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 readiness of the industrial base could absolutely be accounted for with this sort of system. And in fact, we didn't invent, you know, this system um, in that, you know, the the industries, I think, that benefit from it enormously adopted it uh, years ago. So uh, the financial industry has been using this system or, or this sort of system for years. The insurance industry has been using these sorts of uh, the, these sorts of arrays where, you know, for years. And, and insurance is actually a perfect example. Let me let me go back to the uh, carrier airway model. But let me tie in to your question. Let me tie in an insurance example. Right. So the key here is that you know, you can still have your your complex relational databases, but you need a way to communicate this stuff, right? So that's what the the stochastic information packet is, is it's these arrays of uncertainty. But the key is the relationships are preserved. So think about that in insurance. Let's talk about what that means in insurance. So let's say you have two columns of data, right? What does it mean for the relationship to be preserved? Well, it would be absurd if the two columns were essentially independent, right? And those relationships were not preserved. And what I mean by that is, let's say it's let's say it's insurance data on hurricanes, right? And one column is, did a hurricane happen or not? And the other column is, what was the payout? Well, what you'd expect to see in insurance is you'd expect to see a column column of data, mostly of no hurricanes, right? And maybe very low payouts. And then what you'd expect to see when a hurricane occurs is that a hurricane is noted and that, you know, there's a probably a much larger payout by the insurance industry, right? So what we're proposing going to the carrier air wing article is doing exactly the same thing. And so think about that in terms of let's just go down to the squadron level, right? So you have a squadron, you have a you have a handful of planes. Let's say let's say you have a uh, Hornet squadron and you have uh, you know, I don't know, 10 planes, right? That that's probably about right. And so you're you're going to have failures that occur independently. So you're you're just going to have bad luck, right? Maybe uh Maybe you're getting a fault code in one of the planes and the other planes aren't experiencing that, right? But you're also going to have failures that where that relationship needs to be preserved, not only across the squadron, but across the entire fleet. So what I'm thinking about there is, let's say uh, at the squadron level, right? Let's say you have a, a, a lubrication issue, right? Let's say one of your maintainers or let's say your maintenance department has put the wrong sort of lubrication into your aircraft. Well, now an entire squadron might be down, but that might not affect any of the other squadrons in the air wing until that, that lubrication issue gets worked out. But then you might have fleet-wide issues. So, you know, the thing that jumps out at me as a topical example is is uh, the oxygen system failures that the Navy Hornet community was experiencing. Mm. So now, now you have 
failures across, you know, not just a single squadron, but across the entire fleet and even across aircraft types. So, you know, uh, the, the Growler uh, jamming aircraft is Hornet variant, right? So something like an oxygen system failure may cut across even different types of aircraft. And the key is to preserve those relationships. Well, that that can all be done very uh, straightforwardly using using this system. And then what you can do is you can use that readiness data and you can say, well, you know, a fleet-wide grounding is unlikely, but it's possible. We want to we want to account for that sort of thing, right? And and if it does happen, it would be catastrophic to the mission's chance of success. So anyway, that's that's essentially what the system is doing. So it's these these arrays of of readiness data and the relationship are pres- is preserved across the uh, the columns. Good. Yeah, and this leads into the next question, Connor, which which is swimmingly. It's great. I so when you when you use notional data to the to the problem statement you guys uh, provided in in well all three articles, but but specifically when you get AO realized data and system level data, uh, how do you how do you ensure in the fleet that you're you're getting accurate data? So specifically current system level maintenance and supply chain data that's going to affect one way or another a readiness level metric or set of metrics. Yeah, that's that's a great question, Rob. And I think the reason it's a great question is because most of the issues in the readiness system are not mathematical issues. It is not it is it is not hard to implement what we are proposing. The issues are all on the the policy side. And what was interesting when we started this work, and we've really just been doing it in readiness for for the last year, is that there was actually an enormous uh, amount of work on readiness published in the social sciences and in government policy publications, but there there weren't really any solutions. So it was sort of like, well, here's all the problems and uh, somebody should definitely you know, address these, but you know, in the social sciences and the uh, and the policy publications, they really weren't um, they weren't really weren't being addressed. So, but to your point about how do you actually do this, right? It, it's it's all on the policy side in the sense that I think there's two big issues. One is that you know how do you incentivize honest reporting, right? Because if if you incentivize if if you just say, well, we want you to report, and uh, you know the units with really high readiness, those are the guys who are going to get promoted. Well, guess what? You're you're going to get really high readiness reported, right? So I I think I think the key is to measure readiness, maybe not on what we have traditionally measured readiness on, but measure readiness on you know training events that have outcomes that can be measured. And you know it was interesting when I did this, we chose the carrier air wing. Uh, readiness example one, because, you know, I have a background in that and I speak to it intelligently, but I I think carrier, I I think uh, naval aviation readiness reporting has a culture of honesty. And I'm not saying that nobody else does, but I'm saying that I think the incentives are pretty well aligned to report honestly in the sense that, you know, first off, it's pretty easy to measure whether an aircraft is is up or down typically in that we have, you know, NATOPS manuals and we have these very clear bright line standards for when an aircraft is, is up or down. And we just say it's up or down, right? Mm-hmm. So, 
and, and I don't think I don't think every community has that. And I've heard I've heard stories about other services and that sort of thing. Ha, you know, the individual unit commanders have a lot of latitude in how they report readiness. And what I would argue is that's probably not very reliable readiness data. Then, if it's not bright line standards based on you know unit performance, uh, it probably wouldn't be very useful. The other thing I'll say is. Uh, I think the problem in the past has been that the op military operators have been disconnected from the modelers. And that's because, you know, there's a sort of a, a maximum level of complexity you can have on modeling before the operators are just going to say, for, forget it, that, you know, that's that's your problem. And I think one of the big advantages of the system that we're proposing is that it's simple enough that the operators can say, yeah, that's it. like, I can see the data. First off, I can look at these these arrays of data there. They can just, you know, be available. And you can say, yeah, that makes sense. And I can say, oh, that's an oxygen system failure, or that's a, you, you know, that's a, a lubrication failure. And oh, it caused the aircraft and that squadron to be down. Those things make sense, right? And so I think there's a, I think you want, you know, this system to be simple enough that military operators, you know, don't have to spend all their time learning complicated mathematical principles. And I think, you know, if you don't get that extra 5% and that level of perfection, it doesn't really matter because this system is so much better than the existing system. Thanks for that. Connor, this is really, and part of that discussion that you just laid out, I know uh, would be welcomed in a, a next podcast, uh, which I look forward to in the future. Um, my last question, and it's a, it's a teaser question for, for our audience and all of us, are we going to see any future technical articles this year from you? Yeah, so um, so we submitted an article to uh, the Moore's Journal, which is basically a, a technical wrap-up of the articles we published in Phalanx and the one ORMS Today article. And we just want to make it sort of the the go-to technical article for anyone who wants to implement that in a military organization. And and here, here's the beauty of it. It, you know... <laughs> It can be adopted incrementally. So, you know, and I don't expect any, it, it doesn't have to be top-down driven. So you could do this at a, a lower level in theory, see value out of it, and then expand it. But at whatever level you you implement this thing, you, you're probably going to get, get value out of it. So anyway, we want this to be sort of the go-to technical article on military readiness on how you actually implement this system and what the math is behind it. Uh, that's under review uh, at the Moore's Journal right now. So I hope to uh, have that turned around uh, in early August. I'm working with uh, Sam and Sean on that. So I'm, I'm wildly optimistic it will, uh, it will get published. You know, you never know on these things. But uh, anyway, that's uh, that's what we're working on. And uh, I think, you know, I, I think we've sort of said what we want to say about readiness. I think the key now is um, is just educating people on that this stuff is uh, is available and educating the right people, because I just I think it's too easy to uh, just continue with, you know, a system that does not measure readiness, military readiness accurately. Well said, well said. And thank you for your, man, your continued passion, not just in this field of uh, operational research and, and data science, but but in that education component. And as you mentioned, it is, it's a continuing education and ensuring that um, those that are trying to understand and determine and interpret data that comes from various types of models, different types of scenarios where there's this link with the operator to 
the community of, of ops research. You are leading the way with, I know, a great Cana team, but also within the community. So thank you for that continued passion. Yeah, thanks, Rob. No, this is uh, this stuff is, uh, you know, very important to me. And I've, I've seen that these sorts of details matter in a military context. And that that's why I love the uh, the Eagle Claw example, because it really shows something, you know, so simple, so clear that had such strategic consequences, you know, at a national level. So I, I think it is important to get this stuff right. And I, I definitely am passionate about uh, about responding to, you know, leaders like, uh, you know, SecDef Mattis and, and Admiral Grady when they say, hey, look, this is this is a problem. And, and that's what they did. And so I like to think of this as saying, hey, look, this is th- these are realistic steps that the military can take that cost nothing. Uh, can be implemented incrementally and will provide, you know, incremental value wherever they are implemented. So it it is important to me. Fantastic. Well, this concludes our our interview with Connor McElmore. Thank you very much to the Moores community. And Connor, once again, congratulations to you and your colleagues on the John K. Walker Jr. Award. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. A big thanks to Cole Bean and Cassie McGrosty in our production studio. If you'd like to learn more about Kane Advisors and our team Kana, please visit our website at caneadvisors.com. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter and consider continuing the conversation in our community forum. This is Rob Cranston signing off for the Kena Connection podcast, reminding you to analyze, assess, and execute. Have a wonderful day, and we'll see you next time. 